Today I get to talk about one of my favorite things, beasts from the east, and how we use our study of the you know, phenomenal wildlife of Mongolia to actually lead to conservation efforts um, that go far beyond just those species. Most people don't know much about Mongolia. It only borders two countries. It borders Russia to the north and China to the south. It's landlocked. That gives it a very continental climate. Um, it's about four times the size of the UK, just to give you some perspective. I think it's about the 19th largest country, so it's quite large. But it only has about 2.5 million people, and that means it has the lowest human population density in the world. And that's one of the reasons I have to say that I really love the country. It's got a, a very interesting mix of ecotypes from the taiga, which most people don't realize. It has that same kind of mixed um, coniferous forest that you find in Siberia in the north, all the way down to the Gobi Desert. It's got some of the big, biggest expanses of um, steppe grasslands that are largely unaltered in the world. It has a Great Lakes basin, which is much like the Great Lake basin in the United States, the Great Salt Lake that we have. And it has, of course, that Great Gobi Desert where we do our work. You know, when I first went to Mongolia, the reason I got involved was working in a, in a state called Montana in the United States. And a former student of mine said, you've got to come. It's, it's just like Montana 150 years ago. And I said, oof, I'm going. And, and it really kind of is in some ways. Um, once you leave the capital, which is quite developed, there are very few paved roads. There's not even a paved road that crosses the country yet, although they're building one. Um, there are very few fences. And that's really how the Mongolians like it, and it's really how I like it. About 40% of the people of Mongolia are still pastoral no nomads, so they still move around from place to place two to 20 times a year with their livestock. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of unique. Most of them still ride horses. Most of them still wear traditional clothing, and that's not very common anymore. Okay, so this is Mongolia, and Mongolia is very committed to, to nature conservation. In fact, they've set a goal to protect 30% of their country. That's, that's pretty substantial. They're moving that way pretty quickly. We've been part of that effort, and right now there's a little over 13% protected, and we work in some of those. So the place we mainly work is Iknar. It's a nature reserve. It's actually managed by the counties or the Sums. Just this year, we started working in another nature reserve called Gungalut. It's actually not a federally designated reserve. It's a locally designated reserve. But it's another place where we think we can take what we're doing in Iknart and try it somewhere else. People live in these traditional dwellings or tents. They call them gares. Many of you probably call them yurts. I find them very comfortable. I, I love living in it. Mongolia has pretty drastic extremes in climate. I mean, we'll start with the summer. The summer can be warm, but it's also the time when you get the rain. You don't really get rain like you do in Europe or America in the spring. It's very dry. Instead, it comes in the summer, and sometimes it really comes in bucketfuls. The other fun we get are these dust storms, if you, if you manage to come in the spring where the whole sky turns orange. You can see these coming from some ways off, and I remember one time out with the volunteer coming back and telling her, we might want to just pick up the pace a bit because this huge dust storm is coming in. Winters can be quite cold. At our study site, it only gets down to about minus 40. Other parts of Mongolia, minus 55 in the, in the winter. So we usually don't run teams then, maybe for obvious reasons. When you really want to go, if you ask me, is in the fall. And this is what it looks like in the fall. It's already greened up. Beautiful, beautiful blue skies. It's gorgeous. Gungalut is quite a bit different. It's not in the Gobi. It's up north. We have mountains. We have a lot more rain. As such, we have a big river. We have these white-naped cranes, beautiful endangered cranes. So it all started with Argali, biggest mountain sheep in the world. My buddy, when I first went to Mongolia, loves Argali sheep, and we started an Argali sheep project. It's a globally important species, threatened and declining almost everywhere. Everywhere that is now, except where we are, we probably have the only population in the world that's actually increasing. Thanks mostly to you guys and Earthwatch and our hard work. Uh, we've expanded to include Ibex. 
And so really when we first took on um, Earthwatch people, we took them on to help us capture and study our Gali sheep. It's expanded since then, I'll talk about it. We have a really diverse project portfolio. In the springtime, we catch lambs. If you, if you get to them in the first couple of days, you can walk right up to them. And in fact, John told us about this particular sheep and we all, he said, there's a sheep just a couple hundred meters from camp. We all went running out to catch it. And John just trundled along. We all ran right by it. And we were all running around with our heads cut off. And John's like, um, it's here, fellas. And uh, sure enough, it just lies there. And you can go up and, and put expandable collars on them. And they just drop off as the animal gets bigger. Uh, we, we darted for a while, but then we found the real way to do it was to use drive nets. We don't have to use any drugs at all, so it's safe for the animals. And we really need a lot of people. And people help more than you think. And I tell the volunteers, I'm not, I'm not sure they always believe me, but I've calculated it's, it's somewhere between 40 and 50% of our captures are solely due to the fact that at the end of these long lines of nets, we have people. And here are Earthwatch volunteers. And these sheep were about ready to run around the end of the net. We have Mongolian horsemen from the, the local area. They love doing this. I mean, they really love it. They chase the sheep, and they get them running towards the net. And then on the edges of the net, we have the volunteers, and they do a great job. I'm up in a, in a rock yelling, jump up and yell. And they do, and they, and they chase the sheep. The sheep run into these nets, and then the volunteers help us process the animals, collect a bunch of data, throw on some radio collars, and in just 10 to 15 minutes later, boom, we let the animal go. Usually they run right off, but Great fun for about 15 minutes. The rest of the day, you're lying around reading a book. But, it, but it's very, very exciting when that happens. So what have we done? We've caught a lot of animals. Uh, we started with Argali. We expanded to Ibex. We're up to 134 Argali. I'm not going to uh, read all the numbers to you. 39 Ibex. But it's, it's really been amazing. We're getting all kinds of data. This year, for the first time, we put on some satellite collars that we had donated to us. And it's allowed us to study a whole variety of aspects of the ecology of the Argali. And again, I'm not going to go into this in a lot of detail other than to say we're starting to understand what food they use, we're starting to understand um, how they do compete to a certain extent with livestock, we're starting to understand things like mortality rates. And, and one of the things we found out from this study um, that nobody knew about were that domestic guard dogs for livestock are an incredibly important source of mortality. And so it allow, allows us, enabled us to then implement a program where we go and talk to the local um, herders about managing their dogs better. And much to our surprise, they said, you know, we like our garlic, and if, if you see our dogs chasing the argali, you just go ahead and shoot them. And we're like, really? Um, well, we don't have guns, but, but we're working with them anyway to help manage those dogs and train them not to chase the argali, which they can fully do. And here's, here's another example of some really concrete results from our research. So these are home ranges. I'm not going to go into the details, but all this spaghetti are different home ranges of different sheep and different home ranges of different argali. But basically what this allows us to do is identify where is the important habitat in this protected area. So we identified it, and then we went back to the local people, and we said, you know, this is really important for Argali. Can we work with you to set up some areas where we reduce grazing? And they said, you know what, we'll, we'll work with you. And that enabled us to then set up a core area, which we have since done, a core area now in the park where no people will camp and where livestock grazing is much lighter. This is a huge success story. We noticed when we were doing these studies that, you know, that we had this huge breeding assemblage of these really big birds. I mean, these are big birds, three-meter wingspans, 10 kilograms, it's a big bird. They're condor size, these scenarios vultures. And we said, you know, we, we need to start to understand these because they're declining throughout the world. And in Europe, they're cr critically endangered. Um, we also noticed we had this big, big breeding assemblage of a, world, of a world threatened species, these lesser kestrels, which I believe you also have here. So we have this really important breeding area. And as a matter of fact, BirdLife found out about it and said, you know, we got to make Ichnart an important bird breeding area, which they have since done. We again enlisted the help of our volunteers who go out with us, help us capture animals. We wing tag them. 
We've monitored over 300 nesting pairs in the five years we've been doing this. We've put a couple um, satellite collars or backpacks actually on a couple of adults. And we've uh, wing tagged 108 chicks now, which is a lot. And we're starting to get feedback on those chicks of where they go, which is really fascinating. I'm going to get that in a minute. So one of the main things we did with um, vultures is track the nesting success from adults to egg laying all the way through till they fledge. And this is what the wing bands look like. We got some good stuff. The birders in South Korea in particular have been really good about sending us back photos. And we found that, boy, a whole, whole bunch of our birds go to Korea. Some have been seen in China. Some have been seen all the way up in, in Russia, and this is in the summer. So we're getting this phenomenal feedback that, hey, you know, we've got an important spot for these birds, but there's some other important places we need to worry about too. Interesting thing about this spot in Korea is this, you never guess what this is, but it's a, it's a slaughterhouse for, for dogs. I hate to say it, but true. So we put a satellite unit on, and we're getting all kinds of great data. This bird, just in the nesting period, has been in nine SUMs, again, those are like counties or shires, four provinces, and you know we're not even to migration yet. We're just going to hopefully start getting data now. So fascinating information, because we're going to need to know if we want to protect these animals. It's not just the nesting grounds. It's all those other areas they use. What else does this data help us do? Well, it helps us manage this protected area in a way that's going to really improve um, conservation for vultures. And one thing we noticed was that, boy, a whole bunch of these nests are outside of the protected area boundary. So we have since gone to the SUM, and I think this is going to happen in the next year or two, we're going to expand the protected area. This study is being done by my co-PI, uh, James Murdoch, who's a graduate student right here in, in England. So you can see most of our work has been on the foxes, some a little bit less work on the badgers and palaces cats. But we, again, we've got a wide range of study characteristics of these animals. And again, I want to point out this source of mortality. I'm not going to bore you with a lot of data, but that's all human. And that's because what we're finding is um, as Chinese demand and wealth grows, they want more and more wildlife products. And in this case, what did they want? They wanted the pelts from these animals. So the pelt prices went up one year. And um, over one winter, poor Jed, uh, 23 animals collared. They were all killed by poachers and all of them skinned. And we know that because they waited till it snowed and then they tracked the animals to their dens, smoked them out, killed them, cut off their heads and buried them so we could find every single one of them. They didn't realize we could, we could track them that well. So we know from this that, hey, people didn't really realize that these animals were protected as well. And, and these were some of the local people who were working very successfully with us on, on large ungulates. So we realized we need, to, we need to do some education work. And we've been pretty successful in convincing them, hey, Leave Ichnard alone. You know, you can, you can legally collect these pelts outside the boundaries, but if you, if you destroy the source population, this, this population in the park, you'll never have any, animal, any more animals to collect pelts from. And so far, I think it's working. We've also, um, of course, hired a bunch of rangers, which helps. And so all this work, like I said, it's led to expansion of the protected area. It's led to core areas. It's led to management planning. It's led to an active management of Ignart. When we started, Ignart was a paper park. And that means it existed only on paper. There was no active management. There was no ranger. Nobody knew the park existed. So the first thing we did is we hired a ranger. And we funded him. The next thing we did is we, we did some study tours. We did some meetings. We started planning to get a, a, a management plan written. We, we talked about tourism, so we visited sites that had tourism. Got a bunch of, we didn't have a lot of money, so we got a bunch of volunteer rangers. One thing I really love about Mongolia is that in Mongolia, it's the local people who really love nature more than the city people, which is just the opposite of what it's like in the US. So we set up a sister park relationship. We found a park in California. Mark Jorgensen, who is here, his brother loves Argali. He'd been to Argali four times, never saw one, not, never saw an Argali, um, really wanted to see an Argali, sat next to an Earthwatch volunteer on a plane. 
So you see the impact you guys can have and not even know it? Earthwatch volunteer said, you've been trying to see our gallery for four trips and you haven't seen one? I was just handling one. He went back, told his brother, they came out, they were thrilled. His brother is a superintendent of a park in California. We now have a sister park relationship. The park has donated funds for motorcycles, for uniforms. They've funded two more ranger salaries. They brought equipment. They signed a big um, agreement. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's signature on this, and if you don't think that makes a difference, I can tell you it does. We're inviting Arnold over next year, and we're hopeful he'll come. You know, it's just crazy enough he might. I don't know. Um, but they've been wonderful, because what we're really on about here is developing a model program. We want to develop a program that can take a paper park, one that doesn't really exist, and make it into a real park. And I think we can do it all over Mongolia, and I think we can do it all over the world. And lastly, we need to fund it all somehow, and it needs to be sustainable. We need to be all about sustainability and providing opportunities for people to make a living. So we're working with a, a local tourist company. It's Mongolian Run. They start the tourist camp, but they actually hand it over to the community, and then the community runs the camp. So the profits from this camp will eventually all go to the community. So all this stuff is coming together. Why? Because of our research. Why do the tourists want to come here? Well, the tourists want to come here because you can go all over the world, like, like Mark's brother Steve did, and not see Argali, but you can come to Ignart, and I'm getting it within 50 meters without hiding behind a rock, as John will be very surprised to hear, one of our first volunteers, because we have protected them. We had poaching incidents during the first three years. We haven't had any sense, and we've habituated them. We're out there all the time. We're tracking them. We're watching them. They see us. We're not hurting them. And so after a while, Nargali's flight distance, that's the distance at which an animal flees from you, most Argali, their flight distance is three to five kilometers. In other words, if they see you and they're three kilometers away, they start running. Here, it's about 200 meters. That's why the tour operators want to come. They want to come someplace they can show that they're tourists, wildlife, and we're one of the few places that can offer that. But most importantly, what we're on about is building a lasting legacy, a lasting legacy for Mongolia. And the only way to do that is to invest in Mongolia's people. So this project's not about me, and I don't do this work. I mean, I did some of it. But to tell you the truth, they can do it all themselves. They do a good job. They're good researchers. They're smart. They're brilliant. What we need to do is provide them with the opportunity to learn, to give them the resources they need to do their job. And then I'm a firm believer that the only people that can conserve the wildlife and the nature in their country are the people from that country. They can take what I give them, and they can fuse it with the knowledge that they have, and only they can have the intimate knowledge of their culture to create conservation plans that are going to work in that country. One thing I did forget to mention were the threats. Um, there are threats in, in our protected area. We have some mining threats. Um, there's illegal miners, which is a big problem throughout uh, Mongolia. They call them ninja miners. And they come in and they're small-scale miners, but they do some substantial damage with dynamite and jackhammers. We have overgrazing issues that we're trying to get on top of. I've already talked a little bit about that. And we have a poaching problem, which we're, I think, pretty much on top of. Um, because I think we're making some progress, and I hope we're making a difference. And it's really due to Earthwatch that we've been able to do that. So I thank you all, because a lot of you are volunteers, a lot of you are staff. You guys made it happen, and I really, truly appreciate it. Thanks so much.